Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Wait. Just just wait. Just continue to wait. It should be soon. We're still waiting. It should be soon. Maybe. <laughs> we're waiting. We're waiting. Okay. All right. I know, I, know, I know we're live, but we have to wait. We have to wait. Just, just, just keep waiting. I know what you're thinking. What are we waiting for? Just, just, just wait. It's going to happen any second. Any second. It's about to happen. Any second. There we go. Welcome, everyone. It is Sunday, July the 24th, 2022, and it is currently 12 p.m. Central Time. I think I said it's Sunday. I think I said it's July the 24th. I think I said I'm coming to you from Abilene, Texas, but I can say definitively that right now it is 12 p.m. That's what we were waiting for. I didn't want to say good morning at 1159, I guess I could have just said welcome and not said good morning or good afternoon. But now, good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. And yes, it's not been a normal Sunday, but we're not here to go through all of that, okay? We're not here to go through all of that to talk about all of that and all the different things happening here. What we are to talk about is that it's Sunday, and that means another week of Bible study exercise has reached an end which is a little sad and a little frustrating this week because we were handed a great, just two great passages of scripture to study this week. And well, well, how can I say this? Circumstances beyond my control really hindered my ability to spend a lot of time doing broadcast about the passages of scripture. I think I gave you some very good homework and some good assignments to really help you get as much out of the passages of Scripture as possible. If you did not partake or participate in that, well, there's nothing I can do. That's that's the one thing that I have to say about uh, teaching Bible study exercise the way I do. When you can you can you can do a lot for people, right? Uh, I mean, you can give them all the tools, you can give them assignments, you can give them curriculum, you can give them apps, you can do you can do so much for them. But if Christians don't want to study the Bible, they just will not study the Bible. It's hard enough to get them to listen to Bible teaching, but it is uh, at, at times it's almost impossible to get people to go, okay, yeah, I'm going to pick up the notebook, I'm going to get the reference tools, I'll do the work. It's it's very difficult to get people to do that. It can be discouraging at times. But I have, I guess I went through, I, I've gone through stages with this, right? Early on, I'm like, well, obviously nobody is saved. Clearly people aren't saved. They don't love God's word. They don't desire it more than gold and silver. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Clearly that's not true of these professing Christians. As newborn babes to desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, study to show yourself approved. I could go on and on and on and on. Scripture seems to indicate that Christians will love God's word and they will meditate on it day and night. So I used to have the attitude, well, then they're not saved, 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 they're not saved. Well, that really turns salvation into, uh, well, a workspace system where how much you study the Bible determines if you're saved or not. So that, 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 that begins to have some problems. So then I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll kind of move away from that idea. And then it was just kind of just, well, angry. Like, I don't understand why, why, why Christians don't want to talk about, study, read, and, and, and care about the Word of God. Then it kind of, now it's just more like, you know what? That's the reality of it. 
Christians can claim, Christians can say whatever they want. I guess the only time now I get mad is when I hear Christians claim, oh, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and then demonstrate by all your talk about the Bible doesn't come anywhere close to matching how you actually treat it. So then I get a little irritated. But but, but now my attitude really is this. You know what? You, you can't change any, you can't change people. You can't. So all I can do is say, all right, guys, I'm giving you the opportunity to engage in weekly Bible study in a meaningful way by means of this podcast. And I'm going to do every, I'm going to give you Bible study methods. I'm going to give you homework. I'm going to give you assignments. We're going to make a curriculum available. We're going to do all, and and we're going to do, I'm going to do some of the teaching. You can participate in discussion and conversation about it. I'm going to, I'm just going to hand you everything I can to let you study the Bible. And if you, if, if three people do great, if one person does great, if nobody does, this is my attitude today. I'm, I don't care because at least I'm engaged in it. At least I'm engaged in Bible study. And so all I can do is like, Hey, this is what I'm going to be doing. If you want to participate, great. If you don't, fine. And I, and I just realized that, that the majority of Christians will not engage in meaningful Bible study. Look, Christians can claim what we want all day long. The reality is we don't love God's word as much as we say we do. It's that simple. We don't treasure God's word as much as we say we do. We, we talk a big game, but when a push comes to shove, it's like, nope. Nope, nope, not going to do that. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Not. I'll argue with you about your interpretation. Oh, I will argue with you. I will tell you you're wrong, but I'm not going to actually engage in the study. I mean, for crying out loud. I mean, what do you want me to do? I just, I just want to be there to tell you how wrong you are. I don't want to actually, you know, do the work. That That's kind of, I just kind of just realized that's the way it is. And unless something supernatural happens on the inside of them, uh, and I'm not saying they're not saved, because salvation is by faith alone, through gra- uh, you know, faith alone, grace alone, because of Christ alone. I'm just saying, unless there's a spiritual change inside of them, that I, I don't, you know, there's very little you can do. So I, I feel that I feel frustrated that we've ended this week and we really didn't do that much. Um, I wish, but at the same time, I've given. See, I guess that's where the conflict is, right? Like, I'm like, I, I should have done more. I should have done more teaching on this Bible study exercise this week. But at the same time, here's the reality. Everyone was given the text. Everybody was given assignments. Everybody. So I gave plenty of things for people to do to, to actually have a great week of Bible study. So on, on one, but then I know the reality is, well, if I didn't do more, look, the reality is if I don't produce more teaching actually on the verses, people are not going to get anything from it because the majority won't actually do the study. So you see, that's the conflict. Hey, on one hand, hey, I did I did what I needed to do. But on the other hand, I'm like, but did I really do what I needed to do? Because I know the reality is most won't do the study that was given to. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, who knows? I, I guess I'm still trying to figure out what my response should be to the state of it. I just know this. Every time I hear another study, Christians don't read, Christians don't study. Biblical literacy is a crisis in the church. I, I constantly hear that. And you know, but, but you know what you kind of hear from the church at large? Whatever. We don't care. <sighs> Boring. Okay. We don't really care. They, 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 it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You You can stand behind the pulpit and and do everything in your power, and they'll just you'll just get a look from like, look, I'm going to do what I want to do, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, all right, that, that you're right. So we'll just have the a mutual agreement that I'm going to continue to 
try to tell you the Bible's important and you'll continue to just do whatever you want to do. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a weird situation, but you can draw your own conclusions about the state of the church in 2022 and the state of the average Christian and how much they actually engage in Bible study. I mean, you know Christians, you can talk to them. You know yourself. Maybe you have a completely different perspective uh, and I, if you want to share it, that's more than ha- then I'm more than happy to consider it. But here's what we're going to do. We've got, I'm going to try to give myself uh, about an hour here. We'll probably go a little over, it'll be a little over our time. Maybe it'll go a little less. I'm giving myself at least about an hour and 10 minutes to do everything in my power, everything in my power to make sure that this week of Bible study doesn't end without you getting something from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'm going to do everything in my power that you get something from this. Now, I know we're studying 2 Kings 5, like 1 through 7, and Luke 10, and we haven't been able to do a lot of work on the 2 Kings 5 passage. I did give you a bonus episode where you got to hear Dr. J. Vernon McGee work through it. Whether, what, whether you got something from that or not, at least you heard something, and that was just teaching. You didn't even have to do anything. All you had to do was listen. Um, but I, for me, I cannot speak for you, Luke 10 had the most impact on me. And probably because we've been teaching, I've been teaching through the book of Romans now since 2019, and we're in Romans chapter 10, where there's this great emphasis that we're not saved by the law. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The law doesn't save. And if you try to live by the law, where you're going to end up dying because you've got to, you've got to follow it perfectly. We, we talked a lot about that. So then Luke 10 just, just really hit me. Like it's, this, this, this is very interesting and some correlations and connections. So we're just going to spend some time in Luke 10. Hopefully this will be beneficial. And even if you haven't done anything in the study, maybe I can at least give those who don't want to participate in studying something, some benefits from the actual study. Does that make sense? Like you, you've got the, you've got the, you've got part of the audience who like, yeah, give me what to do and I'll work on it. And you guys put some of the audience is like, I'm not going to do that part, but give me some teaching. So at least they're listening to the teaching. So I'm going to try to provide teaching to, I guess, both types of listeners, and hopefully both will benefit from it. All right, so are you ready? Luke chapter 10, here we go. Luke chapter 10, let's go to verse 25. Luke 10, I'm in Romans 10, that's why it makes absolutely no sense. Okay, Luke 10, I was in Romans 10 because, well, it's Sunday, and that's what I'm supposed to be, you know, working on, but that's okay. It's been a crazy week. All right. Are you ready? Let's set aside. Let's set aside all of our circumstances. Let's set aside all of our frustrations. Let's set aside everything going on in your life. And let's focus on Luke 10, 25 to 37, at least for an hour. And then you can go back to whatever you want to do. But at least let's give ourselves an hour to spend time in God's word this morning or this afternoon now. See, I spent all of that time saying, wait, 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 wait for noon. And then I still call it morning. Yeah, whatever. All right, Luke 10, it's been one of those weeks. All right, 25 to 37. Let's set everything else aside and let's focus. Here we go. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Stop right there. All right. Um, 
And and if you'll look at the uh, if you'll look at the end of verse twenty five and behold and I'm, I'm I'm you're like read the whole verse just stay with me behold a certain lawyer stood up and then he says master what shall I do to inherit eternal life so a, someone stands up to ask a question all right so the first thing I want you to consider this afternoon is well let's spend some time focusing on the questioner. Who is this individual who just stands up to ask a question? Now, if you if you want to understand the situation, the, the context here, Jesus is obviously present, right? So if, you, if you're not aware of this, Luke 10, 25, if you go back to verse 24, Jesus just made a statement. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. All right, so Jesus has just spoken, and then behold, a certain lawyer stands up and says, Master, what shall I do to have eternal life? So the questioner stands up. Who is this questioner? Now, obviously, he's asking a question to Jesus, but who, who is this questioner? Let's see what we can learn about the questioner. The text refers to him as a lawyer. Um, if I'm going to look at a different translation. This translation says, an expert in the law. So we have law, lawyer. If you look at the curriculum for this week and the Bible study exercise, you'll note that they refer to this individual, and and I'll quote directly from the curriculum. The man who asked Jesus this question was a Pharisee, a certain lawyer. So they identify the questioner as being a Pharisee, an expert in the law. Now, the law there is referring to the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament. This is someone who is an expert in the law of God, the law of Moses, the law found in your Bible in the Old Testament. He's an expert in it. Now, I found this very interesting statement in the curriculum. When we think of the Pharisees, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll ask it this way. Right. If I if I was I was going to use this this morning at, at, at the church, but I'm not there because and well, this earlier this morning, if I would have been at the church, this would have been one of the things that we were going to cover. So I had this idea of how to present this to the people to get them involved in answering questions. But I, but it would be interesting. I think most I think most Christians, if I was to ask you when I, when I use the word Pharisee, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? And I think I would probably hear hypocrites, right? False teachers may even go ungodly. In other words, they, they, whenever you hear the word Pharisee, they're really immediately, you perceive them as the villain in the narrative. You perceive them as the villain in the story. I think that, I think that would be accurate. You may disagree, but I think most people would say they hear the word Pharisee and they think of something bad, not as something positive. And the curriculum made this very interesting point. We usually think of the Pharisees and religious leaders in the Gospels as the villains of the New Testament because they were so antagonistic towards Jesus. But we forget that these men were considered to be among the most morally upright in the community. So I want to make sure we understand that when we think of the Pharisees, we may not like them, but if we were to see them, if we lived with them, they would be the ones who were so morally upright. They would be the ones seeming so godly, so righteous, 
so holy. They would be the ones you wouldn't have a problem sitting next to in church. They wouldn't be like those ungodly people involved in scandalous actions and don't dress the right way or listen to the right music or read the right books and they don't, they're not a fan of Lord of the Rings or whatever the case may be. We, 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 we would, that was a joke, okay, that we would, these would be the people we would be like, look how morally upstanding they are. They're so righteous. They're so godly. They care so much about doing the right thing. They're an example. And look at that person over there. Man, man, man. Ungodly. Look how they dress. Look at how they talk. I heard that they did this and I heard they did that. And do you see the thing? And we would, those would be the people we would condemn. So I think it's interesting that if we really knew the Pharisees, we, these would probably be the per- people we would look at as being the moral ones, the godly ones. I think that's an interesting perspective that's often overlooked. They go on to say this. They had years of studying the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were consumed with following God's law with precision after adding and often adding even more rules to ensure they would be perfect in their obedience. Since they were the religious leaders, others in the community sought them out. This man was a teacher, considered an expert in scripture. He knew all about God's law. He would probably have even memorized most of them, if not all of them. He would have been, he would have known the scriptures. He would have them memorized. He's someone who actually studies the Bible. He would look like the godly one. I think that's interesting. Because I think this comes down to a very important question we have to ask ourselves. Our perception on righteousness, I think, is greatly flawed. We see righteousness from a very fleshly perspective. We see righteousness simply in regards to obedience to law and rules. We have a hard time perceiving or even understanding the concept of righteousness as being simply something imputed to a very unrighteous person. Even within the evangelical world who rejects the Catholic idea of infused righteousness, we still think of righteousness and godliness from that perspective. And it so influences our Christianity that we say things like, look at what they do, they can't be saved. Look at what they do, they can't be saved. We judge salvation based off a practical righteousness. Instead of, oh, you believe in Christ, you you have been given an imputed righteousness. So the questioner here knows the Bible. The questioner here knows the law. The questioner here is moral. He's godly. Does that impact the way you view the story? This is very important. All right. Now, let's look at this. Luke chapter 25. If I said Matthew 25, I apologize. Luke 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up to ask him a question. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we have the questioner. He's a lawyer. He's a Pharisee. He's an expert in the law. He's morally upright. He would appear to be godly. Right? Everybody got that? All right. I hope so. Now, what does the question reveal? We have the questioner. Now, what does the questioning or question reveal? 
Well, I think it's important. Look at look at what it reveals. Look at uh, Luke twenty uh, Luke ten twenty five. Here's the question: What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This question reveals the the mindset of this Pharisee and this lawyer. They understand you obtain eternal life by what you do, and those simply want to know, okay, Jesus, tell us. And 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 there, I think there's an antagonistic aspect to this, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he's it's almost like oh, and let me try to explain it this way. Sometimes. When, uh, and, and maybe you'll understand, I, I don't know if you'll ever understand this, but if you were a pastor, other pastors would understand this, you, or a Christian podcaster, you're done with a podcast, you're done with a sermon, and then you get a question. Someone comes, walks up with a question, and they ask a question. Now, sometimes you can almost sense the temperature change when the question is asked. They are not asking that question to get any information they're asking that question to set you up because they already have the answer. They already got, they, the, during your sermon, they were looking up scriptures. I'm like, yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's right. I'm going to ask a question. They're asking the question. And it's simply that, like they want you to answer a certain way so that they can go, well, what about this verse? Gotcha. Right. They're, gonna, they're, they're trying to set you up. Oh, man, those questions. There's nothing more irritating when you see that coming. There's nothing more irritating when you open up your email inbox and you're like, oh man, you, you almost, you can just feel it. Now the problem is you got to be careful because sometimes your perception is, oh, oh, that's, that's what they're going to do. But here we know something is up. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. He's a Pharisee. We already know what they believe. Your salvation is dependent about what you do. They already know that. They already have their list of things you have to do to inherit eternal life. They, they already have their concept. So now they're going to ask Jesus, what must I do? This reveals their mindset about salvation. It reveals that they believe salvation is obtained by what you do and what you do not do. It's a works-based concept in their minds. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That reveals everything. But I want you to know he already has an answer. So then the question is, why is he asking Jesus? We'll talk about that in a minute. So we have the questioner, a Pharisee, a lawyer, righteous, holy, you know, from an external perspective. He knows the law. He knows the scriptures. He's an expert. So we have the questioner, and then we have what the question reveals. The question reveals a mindset that says, you do something to get eternal life. You earn eternal life. Eternal life is based on what you do and don't do. It's based off works. That's the mindset. So then we have to ask ourselves, so there's what the question reveals. And number three, what's the motivation for the questions? What's motivating this? Now, there was some discussion this week, and I think some people have a more positive view of his question. I tend to be the cynical one, and I have a much more negative view. So there, there seems to be some disagreement here, and that's that's perfectly okay. I don't know how much it completely changes our interpretation of Luke 10, 25 to 37, but I definitely have much more of, hmm, come on now. What are you doing? What are you doing? And maybe it's just because being a Christian podcaster and a pastor, I face these kinds of questions where you're like, come on, man. You just, 
All you want to do is you want to try to prove me wrong. Just walk up and just say what I would rather. I respect more. Just walk up going, hey, I disagree. Here's the reason I disagree. What say you? Right. I, I almost I almost. And because then I may say, I don't really care that you disagree. <laughs> I'm not going to argue about it. I may just say, believe whatever you want. You know, with your extensive study of 20 minutes during my sermon, you believe what you want, whatever the case may be, I may just be more very dismissive. It, to me, that's just it's easier. But when you when you you get the question and then you start answering it and then you immediately realize this is a trap. I'm, I'm being set up. What what? And so maybe experiencing that makes me more jaded, makes me more paranoid right? So I see this person. I'm like, okay, here's a law. He's an expert in the law. He knows the law. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He already, that's, that's being asked. He's not looking for information. He already knows what he thinks you must do to inherit eternal life, right? His mind's already made up. This is the way I'm reading it. So then what is his motivation for asking the question? What, what is motivating this? And we, we, we did a, a, a good episode this week on this question. You have to ask yourself every time you ask a spiritual question, what is your motivation? What is your real motivation in asking that question? Because if all you're doing is asking a question, trying to trap someone, trying to humiliate someone, trying to prove some point, there's nothing godly in what you're doing. That's fleshly game playing that, that there's nothing, there's nothing about that. That's righteous. Uh, that bothers me so much. Just be like, Hey, I have a disagreement. Here's my perspective. I'd like to, what's your perspective? But, but I mean, look, I, I understand playing those little games, those rhetorical games where you set someone up and you ask questions to lead them to, I understand that you learned that in debate. I was on the debate team. I know about those little games and there's times I've used them and, and did that. And then you kind of realize, I don't know if that was the correct way to, to do so. You're hoping sometimes you're doing, you're using maybe kind of a deceptive tactic in order to try to help someone. But in many cases, you're using the deceptive tactic simply to prove you're right. If all you want to do is prove you're right, at least give the person a heads up. Hey, I'm going to ask you some questions because I'm going to prove that I'm right. <laughs> Just say that. But it, sometimes it's like, yeah. There, there's, I, I'm, I have some issues with this question, but so I'm going to propose two things that he was trying to do here. Why is he asking the question? All right. Or what's the motivation for the questions? We have the questioner or the, the one asking the questions. We have what the question reveals, clearly a works-based salvation mindset. And then we have the motivations for the questions. We have a lawyer asking Jesus a question, but why is he asking the question? We have, we have two answers, and none of them are good. 10.25, and behold, Luke 10.25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Tempting him. Other translations use this phrase, to test him, to test him to try him. The, the idea is the lawyer already has his mind made up. So, okay, Jesus, you're, you're, you're the, the, the big religious superstar on the scene right now, right? You're the, you're the one everyone's looking to. The many of the Jews are starting to listen to you, follow you, maybe believe you. Okay, okay, well, we're going to find out once and for all. I'm going to give you a little theology test, Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Come on, what's your answer, Jesus? Come on, come on, come on. 
Because if Jesus answers it wrong, then they can say, boom, he got it wrong. Jesus got it wrong. He's not a good rabbi. He's not a good teacher. He's fraudulent. He can't be the Messiah. Come on. He, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a temptation. Sometimes you ask a question simply to tempt the person to say the wrong thing so that you can spring the trap. That's what it feels to me. Others feel that maybe he's more genuine, but I, he already knows he's, he's a Pharisee. He's already got his mind made up. I don't think he's like, hey, well, I mean, right there just tells you. He's not asking to get information. He's asking to say, he's in a sense placing a test before Jesus. Oh, you're a teacher. <laughs> okay. A teacher of scripture, of the things of God. Well, let me ask you a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Come on, come on, come on, answer it answer it, answer it. Come on. That's how I, that's how I see it. You, you may have a different perspective, but that, so we have, why is he asking the question or questions we could say, because there's really two questions he asked, but we, we, the, the, the first is to tempt, but then look in verse 29, Luke 10, 29. Do we really see what's going on? Jesus gives an answer. So we ask another question but willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he, he asks questions, two questions. What must I do? Who is my neighbor? One is asked to tempt Jesus, to test Jesus, and the other is simply to justify himself. To justify himself. That I don't see anything positive in any of this. I don't. If you do, man, that's awesome that you may not be as paranoid and as jaded as I am. But so many times, and it's hard not to do that. When someone asks a question, you know, I, sometimes I just want to say, okay, what's the setup here? Okay. Sometimes I want to say, okay, you know what? What do you really want? What do you really, do you just want to argue? Do you just want to debate? So just, just debate, state your case. Okay. Okay, great. You state, because my attitude today really about so many doctrinal and scriptural debates today is like, whatever, believe whatever you want. I don't care anymore. I like, I really just have grown so tired of, of it so much, but, um, it's not that I won't, I mean, I'm still going to preach and teach what I believe is historical biblical Christianity, and I will, I will defend it, but there's just a point where you just realize, you know, oh, I'll put it this way, you got to know when to argue, and you got to know when to walk away, okay, yeah, quoting, yeah, borrowing from a famous lyric, okay, but you got to sometimes know when just to go, you know what, it's all you want, you've already made up your mind, so why are you asking me questions, you're not asking to get answers, you're asking for an argument, and when you ask for an argument, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction, I'm just going to walk away, because all of the arguing, you still think you're right. So what point is it? I'm wasting my time. I have a better, it would make more sense to just go run and play in traffic. It'd probably be more beneficial. So I don't, why is he asking? The text says to tempt and to justify himself. I don't know how you can make that positive. That, that's my own personal feelings. That's my own, per, other people put some persuasive arguments to, to counter this. And I'm glad they did. I just, hey man. When I read this, I'm just like, come on, man, what are you doing? You don't care about eternal life. You just want to trap Jesus. And I know the text doesn't say that, but he's testing him, tempting him. And I think that there, clearly there's something going on here, but you can look that any way you want. So we have the questioner. 
We have what the questions reveal, or the question reveals. Hey, what must I do? We have the why is he asking, right? Or the motivation for the questions. It's to tempt and it's to justify himself. I'll read from the curriculum. The religious leader wanted to justify himself and be righteous on his own. His plan was to scrupulously follow the law, which is impossible. Therefore, he wasn't looking for information when he asked, and who is my neighbor? He was looking for exoneration, an acquittal, and an excuse for his behavior. The truth is, and then they go on to add some more things here. But they're like, they. so the curriculum is like, no, he wasn't looking for information. He was looking to exonerate himself. He was looking, he was, in a sense, in a sense, he was playing a game. So the curriculum sees it that way. I understand there may be some ways to go, well, maybe, maybe he kind of, maybe he asked a question and then, and then he really got concerned. I am, I don't know. I don't know. But there you have it. Now, this is where we're going to focus on for the next 30 minutes. So now let's read this all together. 10.25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up. There's the questioner. And tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right? So then we have what the question reveals. What shall I do? It reveals a, a, a mindset about salvation, that you can earn it. All right? Um, then uh, the motivation for the questions. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right? Then we come to verse 26. And, he, and we, could, we could add some stuff to this. But, and he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Now, I love the way Jesus does this. Okay, well, you're the expert on the law. And it's, I do love this. And we could, we could add this to, uh, we could add this to an outline. But I just want you to see some of those basic concepts. I wasn't trying to outline everything here. But I do love this. I think it's very important. Look at what Jesus d- does here. It's pretty fascinating to me. All right, so so let's read it again and look at what Jesus does here because it's, I think it's I think it's brilliant. Certain lawyer, understanding who the questioner is here, I think is so important. He already knows the law. He's already an expert in it, right? And he stands up. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Clearly, his question demonstrates that he thinks that you have to do something according to the law to inherit eternal life. I love this. And Jesus says unto him, and he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? I love that. Oh, you've done the study. You're the expert. Tell me. I I absolutely love that. It's like, okay, no, 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 no. You, you know, you're, you're the, I mean, it's almost like Jesus knows why he's asking the question. You already know the law, so you're not asking for me to tell you something, so you tell me. And what does the man say? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And then Jesus says, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. I love it. I love that so much. I love that so much. Okay, you're right. That's what you have to do. Go do it. Go do it. All you got to do, you, you, you obey the law and you'll live. You obey the law, you'll have eternal life. If you want to, just keep the law. That's all you got to do. 
It's like, okay, that's what you think. Go ahead, do it. And I, I kind of have this same approach whenever I get people arguing with me. No, 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 no. We got to do, if you don't do this, this, and this, you prove you're not saved. Don't argue with me. That's, you've already drawn your conclusion. You just go do all of those things and prove to everyone you're saved. Now, when you don't do one of those things or you fall short on one of those things over and over and over and over again, if you come back to me, I'll at least offer you the, the comfort of the cross of Jesus Christ and remind you that your salvation is never based on what you do. It's always based on what Christ did. And you trying to prove your imputed righteousness by your practical righteousness has led you now to this point of despair at some point. But I'll just go do it. You go do it and prove everyone you have eternal life. Go show everyone how great a Christian you are. Okay. And well, oh, and be honest with yourself about what you're doing in private. But okay. Okay. All right. So, because there's no point in arguing. Jesus realized, why are, the guy's already made up his mind. So, what does it say? And, the, and the, he, he gives them a law. It's like, okay, go do that and you have eternal life. Should be the end of the conversation, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be the end of the conversation? It should be. So, I think we can do this. We have the questioner. We have what the question reveals. We have the motivation for the questions, and then I, I think we'll call this the interaction. Jesus has an interaction with the person, right? He has this interaction, right? He has this interaction, or we could do this, what the answers reveal. Let's do it that, what the answers reveal, because Jesus gives a number of answers, right? So let's go, let's, let's outline it this way. We have the questioner, Pharisee, law, he knows the law, we have what the questions reveal. What must I do? Okay, that reveals that you already are convinced that salvation is based off works. Motivation for the questions. We clearly see the motivation. I'm going to test you and try you, and I'm going to justify myself. And then we have what the answers reveal, or we have the answers. Jesus' answer is, I love this. Well, in fact, it's the answer is almost a question, but we'll place it as an answer. No, and we won't even have to do that, right? Just in these answering back and forth, we get this. I love this. This do, and thou shall live. This do, and thou shall live. I love that. That's Jesus' answer. Okay, do it. Do it. Follow the law, and you'll live. Follow the law. Now, you need to remember this. You have to keep it perfectly. Now, Jesus doesn't have to, the reason Jesus doesn't have to say anything about it, because he's talking to a Pharisee. He's talking to, the person already knows the law. So Jesus is like, just do it, because Jesus understands the way it works. You, you can read about it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians 3, 10. We read these words, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He's like, okay, just, just Jesus answer, what Jesus answer reveals is, okay, uh, it reveals the fact that by the law, you have to obey it perfectly in order to be saved. That's what Jesus answer reveals. Right? Jesus answers reveals a lot here, but what Jesus answers is do and live. We don't, we can, we don't, we don't want to break down the outline anymore. I, I could, I could break it down even more, but we have, so let's go through this. We have the questioner. We have what the questions reveal. We have the motivation for the questions. And then we have the, what the answers reveal. And Jesus answers is simple. 
do and live. Because listen, if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So Jesus is like, okay, you know the law? You ask the question about what you need to do? All right, just go do it. Just go do it. Then the next thing that Jesus answers reveal, or, or another thing about the answer Jesus gives is this, because this person's going to ask another question. Now, please note, this is so crazy. Verse 29. because Jesus gives him the answer, go do it and live. And so the person's like, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, but willing to justify himself, he said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Immediately, he knows he's in trouble. Wait a minute. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, you just told me I got to love my neighbor as myself, or I just said I got to love my neighbor as myself. All right, well, Jesus is like, go do it and live. And he's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay. Let's see how Jesus is going to handle this part. All right. Well, who is my neighbor? Now he's doing that to justify himself. He, he, he wants to still demonstrate, hey, this is the way you're saved. You're saved in keeping the law. But he knows just simply do that and live. We've got to restrict this to a point, right? We've got to restrict this. And it's probably still another trap for Jesus, probably, again, or another test. But in a sense, he's trying to justify himself because this is what happens. Wait a minute. If I've got to love my neighbor as myself, hmm. The more people who are my neighbor, the greater chance I'm not going to do it. And if I don't do it, then I don't have eternal life. So I need to reduce the number of people who are my neighbor so I have a far greater chance of doing it. It's just a simple matter of percentages and mathematics. If I have 500 people who are my neighbor, that's a far greater chance that I'm not going to fulfill this. If I only have one, and maybe that one is only my neighbor ever once in a while, then I have a chance of doing this. So in a sense, what Jesus, Jesus answers, and his answers are this, do this and live, and Jesus' answer is, and I want you to hear me, his answer is to reveal who is your neighbor. Jesus answers, okay, obey the law and you'll live, and Jesus answers, who is your neighbor? He tries to answer that question. Let's look at it. Luke 10. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So a man finds himself in a helpless, hopeless situation, he finds himself in dire need of help, right? He goes down to Jericho, he's stripped, he's wounded, and he's left half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here is a priest. Now that deals with the Old Testament law, right? The priesthood, right? So you have a priest, Old Testament law, he sees it, he crosses over on the other side. You have a Levite, which when he was uh, when he was at the place, came and, and, and looked at him and passed by on the other side. So you have a priest, you have a Levite. He's using, obviously, Old Testament situations, people associated with Israel, people associated with the worship of God, the things of God. And both of them are like, nope, getting out of this situation. I'm going to avoid that. And then, but look what he says. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. 
Now, this person wants to know, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus' answer is going to give, who is the neighbor? This is important. Jesus' parable, according to the curriculum, features one of the most unlikely heroes in Jewish culture, a Samaritan. To understand just how shocking, even offensive, this would have been to his hearers, we must go back several centuries before Jesus' birth. When the Jewish nation divided, the ten northern tribes took the name Israel or Samaria after its capital city. Because of their disobedience, the Jews of Samaria were taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. Other people were brought in, and they intermarried with the Jews and uh, uh, with the Jews left in the region. God had forbidden the Jews to intermarry with foreign tribes, Deuteronomy 7, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 10. So the offspring of the Samaritans were considered half-breeds, not pure Jews. Samaritans also rejected the Jewish scriptures except for the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. On top of that, Samaritans didn't worship the Lord and the temple at Jerusalem. Instead, they built their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim. Um, Jews believed they were superior in every way to the Samaritans. They hate, The hatred between Samaritans and Jews was ethic, religious, and cultural. A good Jew would have nothing to do with the Samaritan. This explains why Jesus' disciples were so shocked when he spoke with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The Pharisees taught that the Samaritans were ceremonially unclean and were to be avoided from the moment they were born. So imagine the response of our Jewish religious leader when Jesus used a despised Samaritan as the protagonist and hero of his story. Was Jesus trying to get under this man's skin? Was he attempting to provoke him? No, Jesus was addressing the man's question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus turned the question around. Which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? The true question is not who is my neighbor, but rather what kind of neighbor am I? I. So what he wanted to demonstrate here, Jesus has a point. Remember, the whole thing is, what shall I do? So he's like, okay, if you're going to do it, obey the law. All right. What? Or well, no, let me state that again. All right. What must I do? Well, you know the law. Tell me, what must you do? I got to love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, love my neighbor and myself. Okay. Do that and live. And then the guy's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. Wait, but who, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll t- let me tell you a story. Here was this man ended up in really bad, bad situation. I mean, he was helpless, hopeless, and he was, he was in need of, of, of attention, possible death coming. He's in trouble. And there's a priest. He doesn't help. There's a Levite. But here's a Samaritan. So what the question is, is stop asking, who is your neighbor? And start asking, are you obeying the law of of loving your neighbor? You want to know, you're worried about identifying the neighbor. You don't seem to be worried about actually loving your neighbor. You want to worry about who is the neighbor? Don't worry about, do it. Do it. A lot of people love, like, they'll, they'll bypass the, the, the main point of something, right? The main point is, the main point is, well, well, who gets to decide who the neighbor is? Who has the, instead of worrying about that, how about you focus on, are you, are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your neighbor? I think, I think it's important to understand the purpose of this story. The purpose of this story is to really challenge this man's concept that, that he can be saved by keeping the law. 
because he's like, okay, let me tell you this story. The question is, are, are you loving your neighbor even as much as the despised, ceremonially unclean, hated Samaritans? Right. In other words, the Samaritan is, is the hero of the story. Okay, if you say that you will only get eternal life if you love your neighbor as yourself, do you even love your neighbor as much as the Samaritan in this story? Now, what the story should do is like, man, I don't even love people like a Samaritan. I, I, if there, if the, uh, if a Samaritan who's ceremonially unclean, if in this story he he does what he does in this story, well, guess what? I don't even do that, so I'm even more unclean, more ungodly, and more condemned because I don't even do as much as a Samaritan does. Do you see? Do you see what Jesus is trying to? He's trying to show him you don't keep the law. You think you can be saved by keeping it. You don't do so. And I'll show you. Here's the story. The, the, the people, in a sense, the, the, the Jews, the Levites, the pure Jews, the Levites, the priest, they demonstrate a lack of love for neighbor, but the Samaritan did. You don't even love your neighbor as much as a Samaritan. And you want to sit here and argue with me about who is your neighbor. I think that's important. So let me read it again. Jesus turned the question around, which, which, now of the, which now of these three thinkest thou was a neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? The true question is, is not who is my neighbor, but rather what kind of neighbor am I? Or what I would like to say, I think he turns the question around. Do you, who showed love to the, their neighbor? Who showed love? It was the Samaritan. Do you even do that? And you're going to try to say that you're going to obey the law of God to be saved? Now, of course, the true neighbor was the one who had compassion, the one who loved a helpless stranger enough to see his need, not his ethnicity, race, or any other outward trait. The Samaritan's compassion came at his own expense and inconvenience. In fact, if you'll read everything that happens here, look what the Samaritan does. Right? So the Samaritan, he comes where he was. He sees him and has compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an end and took care of him. And the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou were, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? So Jesus is like, so who was the, who was the, in other words, Jesus, instead of figuring out who is your neighbor, are you being the right kind of neighbor? Are you loving? Are you doing what is right? The Pharisee wanted to justify himself by saying, well, who is my neighbor? Because if I can limit the people. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Stop asking who is your neighbor? Are you the right kind of neighbor? Are you loving the way you're supposed to? Are you loving others the way you are supposed to? 
Now, in a roundabout way, Jesus has also answered the question, who is your neighbor? Anyone you come in contact with who has a need, anyone who con- you come in contact who is hurting, who is suffering, it's our responsibility to try to show love and compassion. And our, it's our job to, look, we're supposed to even love our enemy. So it, that's, that's the point. And guess what? You're going to fall short of that every single day. You're never going to love people the way you love yourself. You're, n- you're not going to love your enemies the way you're supposed to. The whole point Jesus is trying to make is the law says do this and live. You do not do it. Even the def- despised, defiled, corrupted, ceremonially unclean Samaritan does it better. That would be an absolute slap in the face. That would be that would be using an illustration to completely offend and humiliate. And the reason he's doing that, he's trying to break their spiritual pride. And he said, he that showed mercy on him, and then, uh, which now, uh, I, okay, all right, here we go. So Jesus ends, which now of these three thinketh thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, he that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. Stop asking who is your neighbor. You go and be the right kind of neighbor and then you will live. Now, we don't know what we don't know what he does. We don't know what the, the lawyer does, the Pharisee does, but hopefully the lawyer and Pharisee walked away going, I don't think I'm saved, and I don't think anybody else is saved, and I think we're all condemned, and I don't understand why this man I I I thought I knew the law, but if I truly know the law the way I'm supposed to know the law, I would realize I don't keep the law. Therefore I need a salvation that comes from something other than the law. And guess what? He just walked away from the one who was where you found salvation. Because guess what? Jesus does do all of these things. He does all of these things. If you think about it, in many ways, Jesus was called into question, right? His character was called into question, right? He was seen as, in many cases, as unclean. Hey, you and your disciples don't wash your hands. You're ceremonially unclean. Wait, you hang out with sinners. You're ceremonially unclean. Jesus was constantly seen as the unclean one. Wait, you weren't born of a virgin. Wait, come on. Wait, wait, no. Jesus was seen as, in a sense, the, the despised Samaritan as ceremonially unclean. By many, he was, by many of the Jews, he was seen as being demonically possessed. So in the eyes of the Jews, they saw Jesus as the despised Samaritan, the unclean, ceremonially unclean, possibly, who knows, mom probably was involved in some scandalous relationship and that's how she got pregnant. He was seen as completely unclean, but Jesus who came to earth, viewed to be ceremonial and clean, guess what he did? He saw us as human beings who had fell, fallen among thieves, who had been stripped of our remnant and was had been wounded, and we were left half dead. We were left spiritually dead. We were stripped of everything. We, are, uh, we have nothing to offer God. We are broken, and there we are. Jesus, the despised Samaritan, who is viewed as just the way, worse off than the way many of the Samaritans were viewed. 
He has compassion on those who are in sin. And then guess what he does? He went to us. He came to us. He came to us. And then by his death on the cross, look what he does. He bounds up our wounds, pouring in oil and wine, setting us on his own beast and brought us to the end to take care of him. Jesus does it all. You know why Jesus could do it all? Because he kept the law. Jesus was the right kind of neighbor. He loved his enemy. He kept the law perfectly. So therefore he could come and bound us up clothe us in his own righteousness and bring us to the end where the price has been completely paid for. The man was looking to be justified by doing what he could not do. And he ended up rejecting the one who did all of those things that he could not do. Jesus, in a sense, is the despised Samaritan. He is the ceremonially unclean, considered demonically possessed by the Jews, by those who knew the law, without them realizing he had come to do what they could not do. What they did not realize is they were actually the poor, broken sinner. They, they They thought they were rich. They thought they were godly, but they were really poor, broken, stripped of all their raiment, laying half dead. And Jesus had come to fix them. Jesus had come to save sinners. And they didn't realize that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Pharisees like, what do I do? Jesus was like, here's what you do. Okay, okay, who's my neighbor? Oh, you want, no, 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 you're asking the wrong question. Are you loving Others, are you being the neighbor you're supposed to be to inherit eternal life, right? If you're supposed to inherit eternal life, you got to be the right kind of neighbor. You got to love. You don't even do it correctly. You don't even do it like a Samaritan would. So the the Pharisee does get it right. The one who showed mercy and Jesus like, go do that, go do that. And you'll, and you'll live. The person seems to walk away and he's like, I, I, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I, I fall short of this. What he needs is, the, is Jesus, who in a sense is that despised Samaritan who does all of that for us. He bound up our wounds. He carries us. He saves us. He clothes us. Pays the price for us. So that we will one day be completely glorified in the presence of God with no more sin nature because the price has been completely paid for us. So, how can we outline this? We have a questioner. That's the lawyer. We have what the question reveals, a mindset that I do something to inherit eternal life. What are the motivation for the questions? To tempt and to justify himself. What did Jesus' answer reveal? Well, it revealed, okay, do it and live. Obey the law and you will live. It revealed that. It revealed the true answer to who is your neighbor. And, and what it revealed is you stop focusing on who your neighbor is and focus on being the right kind of neighbor. And then ultimately what Jesus' answer reveals is that, guess what? You are not going to do this. You're going to fall short. 
Now, there's more I could read here, but I will not. Now, I gave you kind of a sketchy outline there, but I did that on purpose because I want you to kind of go back and work, rework the outline if you want to. It's the last day. You can work it. You can look at the uh, curriculum, see how, how they worked it. There's lots of different ways, but I want, I want to just kind of throw some thoughts out there. My outline wasn't so much a, an observational outline to really break down the text. I wanted to outline it in a way just to get you thinking. There's the questioner. Got it. Got it. Okay. What the question reveals. Got it. What's the motivation for the question? Got it. Okay. Then Jesus comes along. What does Jesus, in a sense, reveal? He reveals the fact that, oh, obey the law and you'll live. All right. He, he's revealing that, that fact, which obviously has a, a purpose to do so. He kind of really reveals the right question is not, who is my neighbor? The right question is, am I the right neighbor? Am I loving my neighbor the right way? And then what Jesus seems to reveal in his answer is, well, you, you're, you're not going to do it. You're going to fall short. All right, I'm going to stop there. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Um, if you haven't looked at the curriculum today, take a chance, read it, look at it. If you would like a copy access to the curriculum, just email, me, uh, email us at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and I will I'll send you a link, and it's easy, and then you can use it. If you've looked at the curriculum, and if you've got any thoughts or, or just anything about this entire section, let me know. I would love to see your outline. I'd like to see how you outlined it, since I kind of gave you... I threw something out there just to kind of get you started, all right? News, I, we were, we were going to work more on the outline this week, but things did not work out. So I just kind of just kind of modified it a little bit to throw some things out there this morning, all right? Newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. If everything works out, great. I'm, well, what, no matter what happens, this afternoon, later this afternoon, I will be back and I will introduce the new week of Bible study exercise, and we will kick that off later this afternoon. Hopefully, you'll be ready to participate in a new week of Bible study, and hopefully, it will turn out to be as productive as this one. You still got the Second Kings 5. If you did any work on Second Kings 5, I would love to see that as well. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.